talks at them. Uh, we're going to be in, huh? No, I will just stare at them. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll be a nonverbal. Yeah. All right, well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to know what your ways are. You have set in the scripture before us the divine plan. You have given us far more information than we need to know, but it's, it, it's a measure of your, your regard for us. You think more of us than we do of ourselves. You declare us, we are made in the image of God. And so you are bringing us to the table and showing us the divine plan. And it is a measure of your regard for us. We ask that we would be receptive to what you are disclosing and that we may look at the events going on in front of us through the lens of Scripture. We're asking this of you, good Rabbi Jesus, show us tonight your plan. We ask this of you, good Shepherd Jesus. Amen. All right, I would encourage you, we're not going to take the time to do it, but I would encourage you to read the book of Daniel because, this, and I'm principally, as I'm speaking here, I'm speaking of the, narr the, the narrative about Daniel's own life and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their relationship with Nebuchadnezzar and the other, and when the Persians come in with Cyrus, the king of the Persians, and, and so on. It's an incredible account let me just give you a thumbnail sketch. In 605 B.C., the Babylonians came to Jerusalem. Nabopolassar is the Babylonian emperor. He was the emperor from 627 B.C. to 605 B.C. 605 B.C. is when they showed up at Jerusalem. That's the year he died, and his son, Nebuchadnezzar, became the emperor. And so the very first giant success of Nebuchadnezzar's own reign as emperor of Babylon is the conquest of Jerusalem. That's his first big success. And so as we see in Daniel chapter 1, they came over the walls. They did not tear down the walls. But what they did was they, he took captive the sons of the elite. He took captive uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and many, many, many other Jewish young men, far more than those four. And he took them to Babylon, and he took them for two reasons. Number one, to be hostages. If I've got the sons of the elite here in Babylon, there's a lot less likely to rebel because I can kill their sons. Number two, I'm going to put them through the Babylonian training program. And they are going to become, I'm going to retrain them away from their culture and their gods to become worshipers of my gods and they're going to become conformed to my culture and they're going to become, I'm going to train them to be good government bureaucrats. And so that's what these Jewish young men were brought to. Now there were four Jewish young men who kind of walked, they said, okay, yeah, we're over here, but we want to remain loyal to our God. And so they went to the head of the school that they were in, the training program. And they said, you know, we're, we are being asked to eat food that has been offered to a pagan idol. Now, both the nature of the food is a violation of our conscience because it violates the law of Moses. But also the fact that it's been offered to a pagan idol 
we cannot eat this food. Will you allow us to eat what's kosher instead? And he did. He gave them that favor. And I was reminded of that this morning as Darren was talking about it's Shriner University. When he went onto the Shriner campus, the very first day he get there, got there, he starts leading people to Christ right now. And it freaked out. Shriner is a very liberal university by design, liberal Presbyterian university. And he is, they are freaking out. But what ultimately happened? The head of their ministry programs, their campus minister, who's the paid administrator, calls Darren into her office and says, I'm going to put you in charge of discipling all the other ministry leaders. What? <laughs> well, in the same way that miraculously Darren was given that open door, to do what was contrary to that campus culture, the Babylonian leader of this school program gave Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego permission to walk the Jewish trail through that. And then they graduated with honors. And at the end of the program, Nebuchadnezzar actually personally interviewed every single graduate and the guys that stood out above all the others, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he's probably totally unaware of the fact that they had gotten that favor from the school <laughs> principal. <laughs> and then, of course, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in the dream, it freaked him. He knew it was significant. It was such a powerful experience for him. He knew it was hugely significant. And so he called in his magi. He called in his spiritual advisors. They are ad and the thing we need to realize is in the Babylonian and later the Persian and the Greek, they really had a, a, a um, welding together of their spiritual understanding, their, their God's and their day-to-day -day administration. They were all one thing. And so he brings in his spiritual advisors, his magi, and he says, okay, I had this outrageously fantastic dream, and it frightens me. It, is so, it was so powerful, it frightened me, and so I want you to tell me the meaning of it. And they said, well, that's fine. Tell us what the dream was, and we'll give you the interpretation. No, 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 no. You are going to tell me what the dream was as well as the interpretation because your standard operating procedure, you say, is that you, are go you will turn... After I've given you the interpretation, I, after I've given you the dream, rather, you will turn to the gods and they will give you the interpretation. The same gods that gave me the dream will give you the interpretation. And you will give me this very impressive interpretation. Yeah? Well, I am going, this is so important to me, I'm going to place a test on you. The same gods that gave me the dream that are going to give you the interpretation they should be able to tell you what the dream was. And that's how I'm going to authenticate your interpretation is you're also going to tell me what the dream was. And they freaked out. They said, no king or emperor has ever asked this of any of his advisors. And they probably were telling the truth. This is outrageous. You can't ask that of us. Oh, yes, I can. And by the way, if you don't deliver... I'm going to kill you and your families. I'm going to wipe out you and your families. Yes, that's, that's powerful motivation. Well, they still couldn't do it. And he sends out the captain of the guard to go from house to house to house to house of all these administrators. And he goes to the house where these four young 
bureaucrats, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he goes to, now he knows them, obviously. He knocks on the door, they come to the door, and he said, okay, I've come here to kill you. <laughs> because you can't give the interpretation. Well, they weren't in the audience. They weren't there amongst the group that were invited by Nebuchadnezzar. They're not upper echelon advisors. And the four of them said, stop, wait, time out. Will you give us time to pray to our God so that he can give us the interpretation? And already among the four, Daniel had been set apart by God as someone who understood visions and dreams. And so this captain of the guard, yes, I will. I will not immediately obey Nebuchadnezzar, my emperor. <laughs> I will give you that time. And they sought the Lord, and the Lord gave Daniel both what the dream was and what its interpretation was. And so he, they went to the captain of the guard, and, he, and Daniel said, God, Our God has given me what the dream is as well as its interpretation. And I love the fact that when the captain of the guard brought Daniel in before Nebuchadnezzar, he says, O king, I have found a man who can tell you what the dream is and the interpretation. Now, he's trying to get some of the credit for him, but it also tells you how much confidence he has in Daniel. I mean, how would it be if Daniel were to come in and give it an, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar said, no, that's not it. No, this man, it tells you what kind of a reputation for integrity Daniel and his three companions already have in the Babylonian court. And so he goes in and he says, hey, I found a man. And Daniel comes in and he tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is and what its meaning is. And by the way, in doing so, he saves the lives of all the other Magi and their families. And Nebuchadnezzar is so blown away, he immediately takes this young Jewish fellow and makes him his number one primary advisor in the court in Babylon. And... Daniel says, well, will you also elevate my three companions? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego become the principal bureaucrats for the capital province of Babylon. This is all I've got. Well, let's look at what the dream was and its interpretation. I'm going to begin reading in Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the Lord had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before, before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was, this is the name given him by the Babylonians, this is his Babylonian name, because one of the, they gave them all new names when they brought them. Bel, his, his name was Belteshazzar. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel's answer is fabulous. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. He doesn't point to Daniel. He points, Daniel points to his God. By the way, this is very, very, very important because this fellow Nebuchadnezzar, who is an extraordinarily wicked guy, is going to be brought into this, the kingdom of this God. 
down the road. But Daniel immediately points to God and gives God the glory. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than any, anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are, the, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile or brittle. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic, ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, plural, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall be left to other people. And it, and the kingdom, excuse me, the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Then 
King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, the capital province. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king, which means he was there in the king's presence all the time. He became Nebuchadnezzar's chief advisor. Okay, that's the dream. What's the interpretation? What does all this mean? What we have seen in this vision, this dream, rather, of Nebuchadnezzar is actually the plan of God for the ages. And he is setting it forth before Nebuchadnezzar, frankly, in a way that's kind of complementary to him and makes the, the, his empire and the succeeding empires look, look pretty good, you know, until the end of the dream when they all get crushed. <laughs> you, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon are the head of gold followed by and these are all succeeding empires now what do we note from this we go from gold to silver to bronze to iron and then a mixture of iron and ceramic material you go from the most valuable metal that we have the value of the culture and civilization decreases as you go down the statue but the strength of the metal increases gold is the most precious metal but also it's the most pliable followed by silver well silver is very precious but it's actually a harder substance than gold followed by the bronze followed by the iron you go from most valuable to least valuable to hardly any value i mean you mix iron and ceramic material there's no value there at all to be really and it even loses its strength in its in that final rendition but what do we have babylon head of gold followed by the arms and chests of silver. What empire succeeded Babylon? Even within Daniel's lifetime, it was the Persian Empire. Very, very strong empire. But the culture of per the Persians, in this, from the standpoint of this dream, was less power. By the way, what does this tell us? You know, we're very fond, or at least our professors are very fond of suggesting to us hey you know the human race has really made great progress we have really you know we are so much more enlightened than our forefathers and that is the opposite of the bible's <laughs> presentation in the bible the human race has done nothing but decline and decline and decline our civilization now we've had places where god favored us with revival he favored us with christianity and there was a a growth or a, a leveling off and but then that ends up declining and so the all the basic movement of human civilization has been to greater and greater decline and that's what you see in this statue at the head of gold followed by the persian empire the arms and chefs to silver and then obviously if one empire is succeeding another they're doing it based, based on strength the persians were stronger than the babylonians or they wouldn't have succeeded in conquering them well who succeeded the persians the greeks under alexander the great by the way if you go back and read greek history and you know alexander had to do a pretty big propaganda campaign to convince his greek followers to follow him in in, in invading the persian empire i mean the persian empire was huge and very powerful 
Alexander's army was about 22 or 3,000 men. When they went into battle with the Persians, the Persians typically showed up with three, 400,000. And yet, while in Greece, one of the things that Alexander did to, to get his people invested, okay, we're going to bring to these poor benighted Persians, we're going to bring our superior Greek culture to these poor benighted Persians. So we're not just there to uh, satisfy our own de desire for power, we're actually going to help these poor benighted pagan people out. Well, when they invaded the Persian Empire and they saw the Persian Empire, Alexander and his leaders realized, you know, these Persians, uh, we don't have anything to tell them. <laughs> Alexander actually ordered all, once they had conquered the Persian Empire, he ordered all of his officers to divorce their Greek wives and marry Persian women. And they had an enormous marriage ceremony with all of his officers marrying Persian women. And then he continued his conquest and he got halfway into India. When you look at what at the length of the conquest of Alexander the Great, it's astonishing. He went halfway into India when his, finally his army just mutinied <laughs> and said, we're done. We want to go home. The average age of his heavy infantrymen who were trained by his father, Philip of Macedon, they were in their mid-50s. And they're, they're the heavy infantrymen. Now, I can go into a lot more detail. I'm going to spare you. But the point simply, and they, they mutinied. They're halfway into India, and they said, we're going home. Bye, Alexander. If you want to stay here, you can stay here, but we're going home. Well, he went with them. <laughs> and, of course, ultimately what happened is when he died, and he was probably assassinated because he was planning to go further conquests a few, uh, three or four years later. Okay, I'm going to go on and do, we're going to do some more conquering. And his, his generals, no, we're done. And so when he died, they, his empire was split into four sections. And we're going to see some of that laid out when we get to Daniel 11 and 12. Um, and the home area of Greece was taken by one general. What we would today call Turkey and that area to the north was taken by another general. And then the Seleucid dynasty took what today would be Syria, Israel, Palestine, that middle section of the Middle East. And Ptolemy took Egypt. Of course, Ptolemy's most famous descendant was Cleopatra. And, uh, but that, the kingdom was his that empire was divided well then what happened the, the romans rose up centuries later and the romans actually you know we're going to help out these poor benighted greeks we are such a wonderful thriving and intelligent civilization we're going to go we're going to set them free and we're going to really give them and of course what happened when they conquered greece they're oh yikes Obviously, they're conquering Greece, they're stronger, and they conquered a great deal of the Mediterranean coast. They're all the way around the eastern Mediterranean. And, uh, but as soon as they conquered Greece, they realized, oh, you know, these Greeks had a higher civilization than us. And they dumped their own gods, adopted the Greek gods, just changed the names, and adopted the Greek language so that in the, in the first century, Roman world, the language of the Roman world was not Latin, it was Greek. Everybody spoke Greek. Even the Roman nobles abandoned Latin in favor of Greek. It was the language of the marketplace, it was the language of the Roman court system. And so they adopted the Greek culture. So what was we see in this vision, in this dream rather, is that a decline in civilization its quality, but an increase in its strength. Until you get to the last rendition, which is the, the feet of a mixture of iron and ceramic material, which has the strength, 
but it's also got a brittleness to it, a fragility to it that was not there when it was solid iron. And of course, the Roman Empire lasted many, many centuries. Yes, it lasted a long, long time because it was so strong and ruthless, by the way. And an example of that is crucifixion. Why did the Roman system, the Roman Empire, last so long? It is because when they conquered a people, they would terrify them. Crucifixion was a custom that they actually learned, the Romans learned from the Carthaginians. The Carthage was a, a Phoenician city uh, in North Africa, and uh, the Carthaginians invented crucifixion as a way of terrorizing their own population. Well, the Romans learned it from the Carthaginians, and whenever they crucified people, they would do it in the most public way possible. It was designed to be as shameful as they could possibly make it, as painful and prolonged in its pain as they could possibly make it. When, when people were crucified, it typically took three or four days for them to die. And they would be, have the nails driven through their wrists. By the way, the Greek word for hand is from the tip of the fingers to the elbow. They would drive the nail through the wrist because there's a hollow place there. If they drove it through the palm of the hand, it would just tear out. So here's this hollow place. They would drive the nail through the wrists, and they would drive a nail through the overlapped feet. And here these people would be hanging. Well, this is putting a lot of pressure on your lungs, hanging there that way. The only way you could get your breath is to push up on that nail that's driven through your feet so you could get your breath and then collapse again. And that would go on after three or four days. They just couldn't do it anymore. And it was they would die. <coughs> well, Jesus and the two men crucified with him, the reason their death was cut, I mean, the two thieves crucified with Jesus, the Roman broke, Romans broke their legs because it was a, the Jewish high holy day at sundown Friday and the Jewish day begins at sundown, it goes from sundown to sundown. Sabbath is actually sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. That's the Jewish Sabbath. Well, they had to get, the Romans had to get those three men off of those crosses before the high holy day started or they'd have a riot. And they knew it. So they broke the legs of the men crucified on each side of Jesus. Why? So they couldn't push themselves up and get their breath. So they would collapse because their legs are now broken and they would suffocate. They came to Jesus. Oh, I believe he's already dead. And so a Ro the Roman soldier pushed his spearhead through the rib cage of Jesus and when they, they saw the blood and the water were separating. Now, Roman soldiers, if they were expert in any one thing, was what dead, the characteristics of dead bodies. And they knew that what a sure sign that actual death had happened was the separation of the blood fluids. And when they saw that those, the fluids were, had begun separating, they knew that was the proof to them that Jesus was dead. And so they... And Anison, uh, not Anison, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nebuchadnezzar, Nicodemus, I <laughs> want to keep on using Nebuchadnezzar, Nicodemus had already gotten permission from Pilate to get the body of Jesus and to care for it. And they did, and they put it in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But, This was, the reason the Roman Empire lasted so long was they terrorized their subjects. And when they allowed the Germans to invade, and the Germans came in, the Germans weren't terrified. They, they just conquered. And so, but the Roman Empire lasted so long because they used terror as their principal weapon to keep people in submission and it worked now that's the legs of iron that replaced the Greek belly and thighs of brass or bronze 
What is this last rendition? It is a, as we're going to see, it is a revived form of the Roman Empire. The forms of the Roman Empire never disappeared. What's that thing we call the European Union? It is basically a revival of the structure and even the geographic area to a large extent of what? The old Roman Empire. And it has some of that strength, but it is much more brittle. It is much more fragile. It doesn't have the strength of the ancient Roman Empire, but it has its form. And as we're going to see, there is going to be a, there already we've seen it before our very eyes, a revival of the forms of the Roman Empire. And what the scripture suggests is that upon that restoration of the Roman Empire, this fellow called the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, the beast, is going to rise on that renewed form of the Roman Empire. It has the form and some of the strength of the ancient Roman Empire, but it's much more brittle. It doesn't have to last nearly as long, and it won't. Well, what's the final element of this dream? Here is a rock cut out of, a ma- out of a mountain without hands. Well, uniformly in the scripture, mountains and hills, when they're used in a metaphorical sense, depict authority. They depict power. This mountain is, in fact, a picture of God's own power. And a rock is going to be cut out of the mountain without hands. Whenever you read in the scripture the expression, something is done without hands, that's a short, that's a way of saying it's an act of God. It's not the act of an angel. It's not the act of a person. It's an act of God. It's done without hands. And this rock is cut out of the mountain without hands, and it is cast on the statue. And it strikes the statue where? On its feet, which tells you it's not something that's going to be the experience of each of those empires in an immediate sense. It's going to strike that revived Roman Empire. The last form of that statue is going to receive the blow in the immediate sense. But then what happens? That rock grows and grows and grows and actually grinds the entire statue to powder and the entire statue is just blown away to where you can't find any sign of it at all. What does that mean? It means that this rock that crushes the statue is going to be an utter replacement and that rock is going to statue and cover that rock is going to grow and cover the whole earth. What does it say? When Jesus Christ comes. Jesus Christ is the rock cut out of God's authoritative kingdom as an act of God. God the Father sent God the Son the first time. He's going to send him the second time also. He's going to crush, strike the statue on his feet, but he's actually going to crush all of these ancient, the vestiges of these ancient empires and replace them completely. When Jesus comes, it won't just be an act of authority where he's setting his authority in place. It's actually going to be a complete cultural revolution. All the vestiges of the wicked Babylonian Empire, Persian Empire, Greek Empire, Roman Empire, and every other empire the world has ever known is going to be utterly, completely removed. You won't even be able to find a trace in what Jesus sets in place. And it will cover the whole earth. This is the dream. That's the interpretation And when Daniel shares this with Nebuchadnezzar, he is, here is the most powerful man, humanly speaking, he's the most powerful man on the planet. And he falls down before this young man and basically worships him. He is awestruck. This young man did what none of my advisors could do. 
And he <laughs> and Daniel, bit, no, 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 you don't need to do that. <laughs> Stop it. But he makes Daniel the head of all of his advisors. And, of course, as the passage said, when Daniel asked, would you please uh, promote my three friends to the three principal bureaucratic positions here in the capital empire? He agrees to that. Now, let me make, how much influence, by the way, did Daniel have on the Magi? Well, centuries later, about 600 years later, there's going to be this uh, child born in Bethlehem. And about two years later, some magi show up. There's more than three of them, by the way. We have, they have three gifts, gold, you know, they, have, they present the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But, and people say, oh, there must have been three. No, there were a lot more than three. <laughs> when they show it at, up at Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, not just Herod the Great, all of Jerusalem is shaken. By the way, those guys, the place they've come, they just a few years before wiped out a Roman army that went to conquer them and the emperor that went with them. And now they've come, these influential men from Mesopotamia, have come and they said, where is he who is born, born unlike Herod the Great, who's not even Jewish, born king of the Jews. And who are these men? They are magi. They are the descendants of these people that Daniel led, that Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel over. And they know when they see this star, which I think was simply the Shekinah glory, the glory of his presence, they know what it means. These fellows in Mesopotamia, they see it and they know what it means and they come to Jerusalem. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? We have come so that we may worship him. And when they came into the house in Bethlehem, they worshipped the young child. And Jesus, at this point, is probably about two years old. Why do I say that? Because when the Magi escaped, Joseph and Mary and the child had gone to Egypt, and Herod realized, hey, they didn't come back to me with the word, so I can go and kill him. So he killed all the young boys in the area of Bethlehem from two years old and below based on, it says this in Matthew, based on the time that the Magi said they had seen his star in the east, which tells us that it had been approximately two years before. Okay, Daniel chapter 7. Now I realize it's 10 minutes to 8. Daniel chapter 7, I'm just going to touch on this very lightly. We're not going to try to do an in-depth. We'll do this, save this for next Sunday. But I want to point out to you some things about Daniel 7, and that is that it actually addresses, to a great degree, exactly what we've already seen in Daniel 2. But Daniel 2 is kind of like the... How can I say this to Nebuchadnezzar so that this extremely proud man will hear it and not be offended? Because Daniel 7 is very much the same information, but it's not nearly as complimentary <laughs> to the Gentile pagan mind as the Daniel 2 dream. Because here you've got these same empires depicted not as this beautiful, glorious statue, but as wild animals. Wild animals who need to be tamed and brought under control. So it's from the standpoint of the hearer or the, the reader, it's not nearly as uh, kind, 
I'll say, a description of the same thing. Now, there's a whole lot more uh, development on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the event of his coming. In fact, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and uh, see what we can do with that. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and Belshazzar was the last ruler of Babylon, he would be the one in the palace when the Persians would come over the walls, and he would be killed that night. But this is in the first year of his rule. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The Mediterranean were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. It was consider, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Okay, let's stop right there. Let me simply say, and this we'll go over this again next week, but this is actually saying a lot of the same information, but from a different standpoint of what we saw in the, in the vision. The lion is Babylon with the eagle wings, but the wings are plucked off, and but a heart is given to the lion, and he stands up on his feet like a man. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? What did Daniel say in the dream in Daniel chapter 2? You are the head of gold. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He got humbled. His wings were plucked off. All of his power was removed from him. And he was sent out into the wilderness for several years, totally insane, eating grass like a, an ox. Until his mind was restored to him and he humbled himself before God and became a worshiper of the true and living God. And his testimony there in Daniel chapter 4 is just such a, and I quoted it this morning, where he says, having his mind having been restored, he said, I now worship the one who governs amongst the heavenly host, the angels, and amongst men whose hand cannot be restrained. He became a worshiper of the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He was given a heart like a man was supposed to have instead of a, the heart of a beast. He became a worshiper 
of the true and living God. You talk about one of the least likely people on the planet. <laughs> but he became a, and you, that's why Daniel, uh, really, do yourself a great blessing. Read Daniel 2, 3, and 4, because it is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion and how God brought it into, into being. But the next beast is this giant bear. But the peculiar thing about the bear is that it's lifted up on one side. Well, the Persian Empire was actually the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a partnership, it was, but the, it was a, an unequal partnership. The Persians were the senior partners and the Medes were the junior partners. And so it's lifted up on one side. But how is it, by the way, that bears attack their prey? Bears are very big animals. And the way a bear attacks its prey is that it, knocks, it uses this great weight to knock over its prey. And then it kills the prey. What did I say earlier about the Persians? army, the Persian armies versus Alexander's army. Alexander's army was like 22 or 3,000. The Persians would show up with anywhere from 300,000 to a half a million. But they were not well-trained soldiers. They were there and they would simply overwhelm the army with a massive human wave. Well, that works. <laughs> in certain situations. And it did work for quite a long time until Alexander the Great showed up with his super professional army and that was basically a meat grinder. If you attacked, and basically, I mean, the, 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 the regular battle plan that all generals use, if you got two armies on the field, the standard plan of battle is you've got the anvil, and you've got the hammer. Alexander's heavy infantry was his anvil, and his light infantry and his cavalry, which he led, was the hammer. And they would envelop one side of these, this enormous Persian army, and then they would just push it down onto the heavy infantry. And these heavy infantry, as I said, these are men who've been doing this since they were teenagers and they're in their mid-50s. They have spears called sarissas. They're 17 feet long. And they would line up in three rows. And they were offset from each other. So that if you were attacking them, you would meet a row of spearheads here. And then about two and a half to three feet further in, you'd meet another row of spearheads. And then two and a half three to three, three feet later, you'd meet another row of spearheads. You aren't getting near these guys. You are dead meat. Well, what happened was the Persian would show up on the field. Now, one of the things to remember about the Greek culture versus the Persian culture, we talk about superior cultures. In the Persian Empire, every single person belonged to the emperor. I don't care if you were his top advisors, you belonged to him. Everybody belonged to the emperor. emperor. He could call you into battle and you had to come. Okay, I am a slave, essentially, of the emperor. He is telling me to charge into that meat grinder. Why? What's my incentive? For the glory of the emperor. Yes, I am so impressed, and I so love my emperor. I'm willing to die for him right now. And this is certain death. There is, not, there is no ifs, ands, I'm going to die. And you are a Persian guy, and you're thinking, you know, that's really not satisfactory uh, motivation for me. And so what would happen? The Persian armies kept fleeing the field because these Persian soldiers, there is no way I'm going to die for the glory of the emperor. I'm just, it's not going to happen. And so most of the soldiers would just run away, totally logically. And that's why Alexander's army just cut through the Persian army like a hot knife through butter. Because those guys, and it was actually the Greek culture 
that fortified the Greek soldier. Why was then? By the way, I've got a, an excellent book by Victor Davis Hanson came out about 15 years ago, and I'd be happy to loan it to you, called Carnage and Culture. And Victor Davis Hanson makes the simple point, why, what was the incentive for the Greek soldier? Unlike anybody else anywhere, Greeks owned their own land. Every single Greek soldier was a citizen. He wasn't a subject. He was a citizen. And he had a chunk of ground back home that belonged to him. And he was going to defend that. Even if I'm out there in Persia or in Egypt, I'm going that. And so it was a cultural outlook that allowed those Greek soldiers gave them the strength to overcome these armies that outnumbered them 15 or 20 to 1. It was a cultural outlook. And that's the point of Victor Davis Hansen's book, Carnage and Culture. The carnage that Alexander created amongst the enemy was because of their cultural outlook. It was simple as that. So here was, so you got the Persian bear elevated on one side because it was a senior partner and a junior partner. And then you've got the Greek leopard with four heads. Why does it have four heads? Because when Alexander died, the empire was broken into four pieces by his four leading generals. And then that is followed by, uh, by the way, the, the bear that has the three ribs in its mouth because what it conquered was basically three other entities, Egypt, uh, Babylon, and the areas to the north. And so there were three ribs in its mouth. But the, uh, the leopard has four heads and four wings on its back, meaning it moved really fast, and they did. Alexander, within just a very, very few years, he conquered the entire Persian Empire and got halfway into Egypt. Into India, as I indicated. And uh, then you've got the verse 7. This fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. And there is no beast in nature to compare it to. It's so ferocious. It had huge iron teeth, just like the legs of iron in this statue. It had huge iron teeth. It, de it was devouring breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with his feet. When you got conquered by the Romans, you got conquered by the Romans. They drowned you to powder. And I just read this recent when, for example, when Julius Caesar went up into Europe, into Gaul, because Europe at that time was populated by Gaelic people, not Germans, Franks, and Vandals. <laughs> he killed a million people and enslaved another million and brought the, so when he came back over the river and became the first emperor of Rome he had and the Roman people reveled in this I mean they thought he really was the greatest thing since sliced bread and that's why he overcame and set aside they kept the forms but not the power in the Roman Senate but he will, here's an example. You read Caesar's Gaelic Wars, and they are grinding their enemies to powder. That's what the Romans did. Okay, we're going to pick up uh, with the little horn and so forth next week and uh, continue with uh, Daniel 7 and see how far we get with Daniel 9 and Daniel 11 and 12. Any comments or questions? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we do want to thank you for being present with us and opening your word to our understanding. We are so thankful that not only did we learn facts tonight by which we can look at, our, at where we are in the historic narrative, but we also see, most of all, you are the God of absolute power as Nebuchadnezzar will say, 
You are the God whose hand cannot be restrained. You accomplish all, all, all to the smallest detail that you purpose. We give you the thanks that you are our Lord who has had his mercy upon us and brought us into his kingdom because you love us so much. As well as in addition to your great power, you are the good and loving and merciful God. And we give you praise. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.